Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. The fight over Saddam's birthplace, but what happens next? The Israelis try to bounce Obama out of a nuclear deal with Iran. Who were the hitmen in Moscow, and does it matter? And Britain's last man standing in Germany. Not only was he losing his job, we were shutting his hometown. And that really struck me. I thought, this, is, this has got a human dimension to it that I hadn't perhaps appreciated. For the last four days, Iraqi government and militia forces have advanced on the besieged city of Tikrit in an attempt to recapture it from Islamic State militants. Rafi Jabouri, a spokesman for Iraq's prime minister, is positive about the outcome. This is a major operation and there has been uh, a significant uh, progress made by our troops. Uh, advances clearly were made. This operation is still not finished yet. The ultimate goal is to liberate the city of Tikrit and by then uh, almost the whole province of Salahuddin will have been liberated from uh, ISIL. So far, the commander in Iraq has not asked the Americans for close air support or bombing. BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. Hello, Christopher. Um, how important is Tikrit? Tikrit is a major town. It's the birthplace, incidentally, as you say, of, uh, of uh, Saddam Hussein. So it, become, it has a, a symbolic uh, importance. It is important because you're getting some of your own country back. It is important because you are trying to stop the advance of IS to set up their caliphate, their own country, in their own name. It stops them advancing further because there's another town to get, which is Mosul, which is even more important. Mm. And it stops them retrying to get hold of Baghdad. And it is also the most important thing. It is the, it is the proper test of the Iraqi forces to see whether they can do the job without the Americans. You say a proper test of the Iraqi forces. Who exactly is fighting here? We've got the Iraqi forces themselves or an element of them, let's say about 30,000. So that's probably the total uh, active on-the-ground fighting force of the Iraqis. We've also got militia, and they're so-called mo uh, uh, volunteer militia. They are a Shia militia. And don't forget that what they're force fighting, the IS, are Sunni-based. They are commanded. They are commanded by an Iranian. And here be the fascinating side of it, because the Iranians are in there trying to help them knock out the IS. Why would they do that? Because the IS are Su uh, Sunni. They're taking over the Middle East, as, uh, according to the Iranians. The other thing is, there's no way that the Americans, even if the Iraqi government asks, there's no way the Americans could actually put in air forces Couldn't. to attack. No, no. Because? Because the Iranians are on the ground fighting. And it's not whether you hit the Iranians by mistake. It was because then it would be known that the Iranians and the Americans are suddenly allies. Why is it that the chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dempsey, has been saying that Iranian involvement, which you speak of, could be a positive thing? Because I think there is a certain sense of realism that the Israelis, uh, the, the, the Iranians have the expertise. I mean, uh, he is a brilliant general brilliant general. They have the expertise which, they are, which is needed to maintain authority, as they would see it, in Syria. 
then against the IS as part of the building of the caliphate. And then eventually you start thinking on a much grander scale, and that's down to the Yemen. There's the other thing, and there's the creeping, creeping realization, I think, in America, in Washington, people I talk to there, that um, that perhaps Saddam uh, went very easily, and everybody got the idea that you could take out any Middle East leader. But Assad in in Syria is not going to go like that. The Iraqi Prime Minister has said that uh, they will be uh, conducting an onslaught to get IS out of Mosul, but no timeline for that. Is that going to be the real turning point if that's successful? And why would he announce it in advance? Uh, Because it's the the most obvious gap, it's the most obvious blood, rather, in in the whole map of of Iraq. People say, you're going to take out Tikrit. Well, Tikrit, you can hold those, perhaps with the Peshmerga, you know, the Kurdish. That's an emotional victory. That's an emotional victory. But here is the crunch of the whole thing. Just supposing you get the military thing right and you do get to creep back, you manage to get as far as Mosul, you then have the hugest problem of all, and that is the political consequence. Once you've taken those places, there is nothing in the Iraqi handbook at the moment of military warfare which says that they've got the political system that can go and re-establish authority in Iraq. So to Crete and then Mosul bit of a red herring about the security of the whole of Iraq. Elsewhere this week, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu went to Washington but not to see President Obama. He went there to challenge the United States and her allies who are negotiating a nuclear power agreement with Iran. He used the platform of the US Senate, the leader of which had invited him. The President was not even on the guest list. I'm joined by Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Southern Utah. Good to speak to you today, Professor Stathis. Uh, What's going on exactly? Now, what was the question? What's going on exactly here? Well, the fact is that uh, many Americans are trying to figure this out as well. This is the first time in the history of the republic that Congress has invited a foreign leader to speak in actual opposition to an established foreign policy of this country. And, of course, this fell on uh, Speaker of the House John Boehner and the President pro temp of the Senate, Orrin Hatch, who happens to be from my state, uh, uh, Utah. Um, This is a problem. Uh, The Constitution is fairly clear on this. It is the sole power of the President of the United States to receive ambassadors and heads of state. Uh, This was not just a violation of protocol, it was uh, technically a violation of constitutional rule. And beyond that, uh, there is this little issue of uh, the Israeli election. Um, uh, This very much uh, was an election ploy on the part of uh, Netanyahu, and most Americans know that. Yeah, you mentioned that, but isn't that exactly the reason why President Obama would never have been able to invite him now? Well, uh, President Obama uh, has used as something of an excuse uh, to kind of uh, uh, find a way to not be uh, in the vicinity that a meeting with the president and the prime minister right now uh, would be seen as improper uh, in terms of uh, the timeliness of that election. And, um, well, uh, in a practical sense, that's very, very true. But mm. but there was a larger issue. There, There is... There's a, there's a beef between the president and the prime minister of Israel. Uh, that's, that's common knowledge. Okay, Christopher, just just talk us through what he said exactly. Well, um, what uh, maybe Netanyahu said was this: the American-led 
coalition of uh, Western diplomats, maybe five or six in the United Nations, are trying to get an agreement with Iran about the method of which they're going forward to build a peaceful uh, nuclear system, in other words, reactors, energy, etc. The Israelis believe that they're going to that next step of enrichment of uranium so they will have weapons grade and so that they could become a nuclear state. Now, on the day that uh, Netanyahu was addressing Congress, uh, John Kerry, the American U.S. Secretary of State, uh, was having talks with the Iranians to try and get a program for this. And the program is roughly like this. You know, we'll get an agreement within a month of, of the basics. Then we'll give a, have a breather for six months to see if it can all be done. Then we'll come back and sign. And it's that six months that Netanyahu is saying, don't dare come back and sign up because you're signing up for the death of Israel because the Iranians have made a declaration that they intend to destroy that state. Uh, he wasn't saying anything new. But he was saying it to very, very, very clear, clearly heard areas. Michael, is, is Washington so sensitive to the Israeli Jewish opinion that they could take a hard line with the Iranians? Well, uh, you know, as, as any American politician knows, um, you attempt to say nothing but kind things about Israel or positive things about Israel, um, uh, particularly if you're going to be running for uh, for re-election. But uh, there there are larger questions here, uh, uh, certainly questions of Israeli security, but uh, uh, it could well be construed that John Kerry uh, and other European leaders are on the verge of a significant breakthrough in terms of uh, a negotiated deal uh, with Iran, uh, which, uh, well, uh, could be good for everyone except maybe uh, Netanyahu. Uh, such an agreement, of course, uh, would make him look uh, 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 not so good uh, in, his, in his own country. But uh, the speech was a little odd in that uh, uh, it kept talking about the possibility of a bad deal, but really offered no alternative uh, except for the possibility of uh, future military action. And th this is nothing that uh, uh, European governments in the United States want to, uh, uh, want to entertain. Indeed, uh, this is what the negotiations are trying to avoid. All right. Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Southern Utah, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Still to come, Britain's last general in Germany is about to go home and Afghanistan at the Cricket World Cup. This is BFBS. Sit rep. The crowds that turned out for the burial of the Russian opposition leader Boris Nemtsov was the nearest thing to a state funeral in the Russian capital. He was shot to death last week and there were immediate rumours that the hitman had been contracted by a chain that could even lead to the Kremlin itself. Well, we're joined now by former Kremlin advisor Alexander Nekrasov. Good to speak to you today. Thank you. You don't think so, do you? Well, it doesn't really make sense for Putin and the Kremlin generally to have one of the opposition figures killed outside their doorstep. I mean, it... it you, call it, him a, it you called him a charismatic troublemaker. Well, he was a troublemaker. To be honest with you, he didn't really have a large following because uh, he sort of uh, gradually distanced himself from frontline opposition politics. And uh, he would occasionally take part in some march. He would be arrested, you know, uh, by police. He would spend a few hours in the police station. He would come out smiling and saying things. But to be honest with you, he didn't really have any program, any anything to... 
um, attract people's attention. I think he, his star was on the wane. So uh, it would be very strange for Putin with such a huge popularity rating to be going after opposition leaders who are not really... You know, very important, to be honest. I'm sorry I'm saying this, but that's how it is. Your, your connections with the Kremlin go back to the days of President Yeltsin. In that time, did you, in all this time, have you ever witnessed such accusations of a political mafia as are flying around at the moment? Well, I, I actually can tell you that uh, a lot of opposition newspapers and radio stations and, and tele television stations in Russia use absolutely unbelievable language. And people, what they say about Putin and the Kremlin and corruption in uh, uh, echelons of power is unbelievable. Because compared to what the papers write in Britain, oh, this is all pussyfooting here. Uh, you know, Cameron is getting away with it because uh, Putin is getting criticism on a level I find astonishing, to be honest. Honest. Christopher, how difficult is it to get to the truth about Russia, its intentions and its international intentions? Do you know, I, I mean, I've, I've watched this sort of Russia story ever since I worked there as a BBC correspondent in Moscow. And what's always struck me is the fact that um, big organisations like the State Department, Foreign Office, with men of great experience, uh, Russianists, often simply don't understand what's going on in the minds of the Kremlin. And I've never understood why. I mean, someone like uh, uh, Alexander has followed this far more closely from that side of the fence. And still, it's a puzzle why people do not get alongside the mind of someone like, someone like Putin. Alexander Nekrasov, um, what do you think the Kremlin will be thinking about this assassination? And who do you think did it? Well, I personally have my own opinion. I think the people behind this assassination are the ones who want to keep the status quo in place. These are the people who are behind the privatization of the 1990s, the gangster-type privatization. They're still very powerful. They still control a lot of money and a lot of um, uh, influence, a lot of uh, decisions in the Kremlin. I think what the West doesn't understand is after the crisis in Ukraine, when the red line was crossed. Russia is on the verge of big changes. Putin wants to hold back those changes because he has basically always been presiding over the status quo. He's trying very hard to unite the nation. Unfortunately for him, people are asking all sorts of... Uh, questions like why actually do we have people from the Yeltsin years who have enriched themselves, who have broken the law, who have grabbed all our assets and are still there? Why isn't Putin dealing with them? I think there will be a lot of problems for Putin. I think he understands that the pressure is on him, the spotlight is on him. I think the West has misjudged the situation in Russia. I think the West is pushing too hard and might get, you know, some sort of a general coming to the Kremlin and then they'll really have a problem dealing with him. Uh, I think changes are coming. Unfortunately... What kind of changes? Well, I think there will be demands for a review of the privatization, or at least part of it. There will be demands to actually get some of the so-called oligarchs who have amassed vast fortunes to, let's put it this way, share some of their wealth with the nation. There will be demands for heads to roll. I'm still surprised, by the way, that the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Security services have not had any uh, difficult times from Putin because they've missed it. They've missed the crisis in Ukraine. I'm actually astonished 
that not a single head has rolled in Moscow. And I think Putin really, really is testing the tolerance of the people because it's all very great to talk about his 80% uh, popularity and it will last for a while until the war in Ukraine is going on and the people are behind Putin. But he has to answer certain questions. He has to change certain things. He can't be seen as a president surrounded by his uh, mates, friends, who are worth about $10 billion each. You know, questions are being asked. Putin has to do something. I don't think he can cling on to the status quo. And this is the real question and the real test for him. That's why this murder is definitely, in my opinion, personal opinion, is, uh, the people behind it are the ones who want to weaken him mm. and basically send him a single, don't you even dare think about it. All right. Alexander Nekrasov, thank you very much for joining thank us. Um, Christopher, I guess we may never know. We may never know. Um, there's another side to this, um, which, again, looking looking a load of statements that you get out from, from, from Washington, London, uh, not so much out of Berlin, but uh, certainly out of Paris as well. And we portray sometimes as uh, Putin, who is the strong, uh, self-assured, uh, defiant, slightly sort of smirking figure, but cold figure mm. when he's presented in Western society in, in, in magazines as newsreels from NATO meetings, etc. However, there is also a truth about the way Moscow works, and that is an element in it that Putin must be looking around to see in the Kremlin or the Kremlin reaches who might be the start of the palace revolution, because eventually... Mm. If there is a change, it'll come from within uh, the Kremlin. It won't come from European capitals. You, you, on the subject of Ukraine, uh, one of the unknowns for the past 12 months has been whether President Putin sent Russian soldiers into the eastern part of the country. Reports this week that, that may help us get a bit closer to the answer. Yeah, and what we're getting is, and it's only from one one soldier is in a hospital, uh, just come out of a, an intensive care unit, in fact, and he was wounded uh, in a tank... Um, uh, not far from Donetsk, and he's a Russian. And so you say, right, I got myself a Russian. That proves it. Well, it doesn't actually prove it, because what he is starting to say, in some state of shock as well, when he was interrogated um, or, or questioned, was that, look, uh, what happens... I was a conscript. We were asked if we would volunteer for some force that would go into the Ukraine. Some of our guys said, no, no, I don't want to go down there. Nothing to do with us. And that was all right, and nothing has happened to them. I was one of the people that said yes. Now, it starts to build up a picture that what Putin has been saying, in, to some extent, is in the truth. And they're just the people who are there are just volunteers who just wanted to go. doesn't explain how they're supplied with, A, all the machinery they've got with them, the training they've got with them, the types of people, you know, with Spetsnaz, which is the special forces, etc., uh, and nor the equipment in terms of armour. Nor does it explain why there is a 30,000... Uh, sort of two divisions sitting on the border to back them up if it goes wrong. But it's this idea that it could really be a volunteer thing. For 70 years, the front line of the Cold War and uneasy peace has been Germany. UK forces have been on that line since 1945. All that comes to an end this month. The British Army is pulling out and Major General John Henderson, the last British two-star in Germany, has been overseeing drawdown. He's been speaking to BFPS reporter Rob Olver. 
Funnily enough, it, it's, it's that realisation as you close organisations. It's not just about closing garrisons, handing over the keys uh, and making a few people redundant. Although that in itself is not, I wouldn't belittle that in any way, shape or form. But I'll give you a, a sort of one example, if I may. Just before we left uh, Ryan Dahl, someone asked me, would you do a 40-year certificate for someone who's served with us for 40 years? Yeah, no problems. Had a chat with the, the gentleman afterwards. Turned out he'd moved to Ryan Dahl in 1955, age 12, with his father. He'd never lived in Britain afterwards, and he was losing his job because we were making him redundant. He's in his early 60s, so he's effectively going to retire. Not only was he losing his job, we were shutting his hometown. And that really struck me. I thought, this, is, this has got a human dimension to it that I hadn't perhaps appreciated. So that's, that particular event has stuck in my mind. So when you're going around talking about, yeah, we're going to close things, we're going to do that, it's actually thinking through to the end, think of the wider dimensions, the wider effects that it has on families and it has on people. You're a fluent German speaker. You have dealings with senior politicians and officials all the time. When they ask you why British troops are leaving, particularly at a time of heightened tension in Europe with Russia and the Ukraine crisis and so on, what do you say to them? Well, of course, uh, the, the whole piece with there is about, you know, where are British forces best located for future operations? And... Army 2020 sees three armoured infantry brigades around Salisbury Plain, where we'll concentrate in terms of the, not only the, the stationing, if you like, the barracks, etc., we'll also concentrate the equipment, its support arrangements, the logistics and all that sort of thing. Now, we're in a different place to the Americans. The Americans are going to leave equipment in Germany. It takes you two weeks to get a ship from South Carolina to the French ports and then put them on a train and then take them across Germany to wherever you wish to go if it's Eastern Europe. We are 24 hours by lorry. You know, so a tank transporter can be from Tidworth passing Paderborn 24 hours after it left Tidworth. If you can get out the door... 10 days early because you've got a better support arrangements and better training arrangements, which you might well do because you've actually got, instead of having things penny-packeted, you're actually nine days ahead as you pass Paderborn. And that's where, that's where Army 2020 will allow us to be. I recognise entirely you know, the, the physical presence in a place has a political statement, but actually I think the exercises we're conducting in Eastern Europe more than make up for that. So is there you know, any basis at all to uh, talk of contingency plans envisaging keeping maybe a few thousand troops in Germany beyond the proposed withdrawal in 2020? I mean, no, I don't think there is. I mean, a, it's very expensive financially. You know, we provide all the support services that we would otherwise get from other ministries in the UK, so schools, hospitals, you know, uh, housing, transport. You know, we, we spend an awful lot of money providing things that local authorities would do in the UK and, and wider government. So that's point one, it's expensive. Point two, actually it's not that attractive anymore. People's life choices are changing. People are now, you know, they get their fun from going on operations and training, but they want to settle down. They want to buy their own house. You know, they, their, their wives and husbands want to get jobs, meaningful jobs and follow careers. They want their children to go to the local school, not to move schools every two or three years. So all those things can really only be done if you're in a stable environment, you know, in the UK, because most of us are going to live in the UK. So, so I think that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there's the whole business of, you know, how much it costs. So, so I think, I, I don't think there's much of a case for it. That was Major General John Henderson talking to Rob Olver. End of an era then, Christopher. It is end of an era. It's interesting to me, anyway, that we are going, 
And the Americans can come back, you know, in, in a couple of weeks because they're keeping some supplies, they're keeping a forward uh, a, a basing operation going. But it's at a time when NATO is saying, perhaps we ought to be um, thinking of deploying in Germany hmm. uh, or, or, you know, looking at the front line. There's an exercise going on just north of where Ge- uh, General Henderson is at the moment, a naval ex- standing force naval exercise at the moment, uh, just been going on this week. And the Russians have got uh, electronic surveillance ships out there listening to the signals that they're making. It's that sort of tension and it's not just we shifting, everybody's shifting out of there. We have General Dannett, former CGS, saying we ought to keep a brigade sides there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting what he's going on to do. He's going to be a chief executive at Staffordshire Council. And his own parking space. <laughs> it is fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> no, but there you are. I mean, when you know, we were talking, weren't we, a few weeks ago about... It seems uh, quite a loss, really, doesn't it? A, I mean, a man who's overseen this kind of period within Germany going and leaving like this. Cool, crikey, you've never been to Staffordshire. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, running a county the size of that mm. uh, is a doddle of doing it in Germany. These guys are going off all over the place to do things, to those those big jobs in civilian life. Never used to. Generals used to go off and they were on committees and things like this. Nowadays, they're like the rest of, uh, let's say, the civil service. They expect to go into very, very big jobs. We were talking about going down to Sierra Leone and Ebola, for example. And what, why the British thing has worked in Ebola mm. in Sierra Leone so well, we've got the wiring diagram and the, and the, and the experience of running big Funny things. Funny you should bring that up, because uh, the bug that won't go away, Ebola. Our reporter Charlotte Cross has been to Sierra Leone and spoken to the optimistic commander of British forces. That's Brigadier Andrew Hughes. It's been a really novel operation uh, in lots of ways, but I, I just raised two. Um, I think the first is this is a humanitarian operation, and not many of us have been involved in this before. Uh, And you know what? I think we're all really enjoying it. And I get around the force, and there are over 800 of us here, and everyone is really up for this, and they're enjoying it, and they're enjoying giving to this country and the people of this country. It's novel in that we're here to support DFID, Department for International Development. Um, We have different ways of of operating. Uh, We're very hierarchical. Um, We're pretty black and white about things sometimes. Uh, they like to sit around a table and have a good discussion, uh, but they've got some seriously good people. I mean, some real deliverers, some really bright people who I respect enormously. And I think, working together, uh, we're, we're delivering. Um, so I think, as a proof of concept, this has been a great success. Operation Gritlock has been described as a very much a conditions-based deployment. Um, How do you see it evolving as we go forward? Um, I'm absolutely clear that the British forces are here to support DFID for as long as they want us to stay here. But there'll come a time when they don't want us. So uh, for the time being, we're here in the numbers we're here, just over 800. And I think over a period of a number of months, we'll begin to withdraw that number down to a more suitable level, completely dependent upon the epidemiology dependent upon what the disease is doing and dependent upon what DFID want. So I'm not going to make any plans for withdrawal without getting DFID say-so. There's still obviously quite a lot of work to be done here before we actually get to zero, the rocky road to zero. Um, We visited Kerrytown Treatment Centre. They don't have a huge number of patients there at the moment. We visited one of the Dirks, which also seems to be a lot quieter Mm. than perhaps it was back in December. Is drawdown already happening? Um, There's no drawdown going on. Uh, There's no military drawdown going on. Uh, We're looking to do some re-posturing 
uh, in future, not just yet, but perhaps in the, in the next month or so, maybe the next two months or so. There are now lots of NGOs out there. There are some really clever professional people whose job it is, whose day job it is to do this. They know what they're doing. So slowly over the course of time, they will step in and do this business because they know much more about contact tracing than we do. They know much more about all these, these things that have to be done which will allow us to step back and um, keep a good look on things and surge into those areas that perhaps might need us. Commander of British Forces, Brigadier Andrew Hughes, speaking to Charlotte Cross in Sierra Leone. PFBS Zipwrap. And three Afghani players are on the ground over at a square leg position. The Scottish players shake their hands. Wardlaw over-pitching outside the leg stump and Chapur retaining his composure, clipping it to the boundary. They've won, have Afghanistan, their first World Cup game. They've beaten Scotland by just one wicket. Good news for Afghanistan. Not in Afghanistan, but Australia at the Cricket World Cup. Christopher? Great stuff, isn't it? I mean, you go through a decade of, um, of hell of a warfare like this. This is the sort of thing that might just come out of it. They no big names in, in Afghan cricket, in, in, in world cricket, but they've been around for a bit. They beat Scotland. Mind you, everybody beats Scotland at the moment. Yeah, they, they were beaten by Australia, though, sadly, afterwards. But how, how long does the history go back, briefly? Um, in to Vict early Victorian times, the British taught the people, because it was all India then, how to play cricket. Um, then they massacred a load of the English after that. But it's interesting, the sports that come out of war. Tennis was played after the war with France. There's sports that doesn't matter, though they're not that competitive. And that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again this time next week. Bye-bye. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Hi, no.